proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the reformed confessions of the faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The confessional collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I am your host, as well as the pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have planter and pastor Michael Beck. Mike is the preaching pastor at Grace Net Church in New Zealand, so don't adjust your uh, your sound or anything. That is a weird accent that you're going to hear. Mike, how you doing, man? Good, man. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Appreciate it, bro. This is awesome because, like, we're right now speaking into the future. You're a whole day ahead of <laughs> us. This is this is wild for me. So uh, that's true. Future looks bright, by the way. <laughs> Praise God. You know, I kind of knew that because I turned to Revelation every once in a while, and right there it tells me he wins. So, <laughs> yeah. very cool. And, and I'll just clarify while we're at it. My, my accent is actually South African, not Kiwi, um, because I'm from South Africa originally. And uh, so I've got a real mess of an accent, by the way. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of Clint Eastwood in there as well. Too many cowboy movies growing up. <laughs> you are a mess you of know, a man, aren't you? <laughs> I am a message, man, and and Jesus is full of truth and grace, man. Amen, amen. amen. Mike is the uh, regional coordinator for New Zealand for Acts 29, and Mike, we first met when we were both going through boot camp for Acts 29 in California, and um, yeah. it was an honor to meet you then, and we found out we had some other connections, one of which is our friend Joe Thorne, and I know you and Joe have actually, you've actually gotten Joe to come out to New Zealand, correct? Yes, and he's coming out again uh, at at the end of this year. Wow, he likes to travel. Yeah. I understand, huh? Uh, yeah, he he actually doesn't. <laughs> That's <laughs> why. I said. But yeah, it's out of love, man. It's out of love, and and yeah, it was a really great time having him over for that previous conference. Uh, it was an X twenty nine conference, and uh, we're having him over again just just because it worked so well. Um, along with Jim Renningham, who's like a Reformed Baptist gangster. You know, he's like the original gangster. So it's going to be pretty cool. That's awesome. Hey, Mike, yeah. can you just give our listeners maybe a quick uh, two two minute uh, who you are and what you've been up to in the last uh, last few years? Uh, yeah, man. Well, you know, uh, I suppose it all began, um, you know, in terms of the church planning journey, anyway, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later on. Um, but about we came over about 10, 11 years ago uh, from South Africa with a team uh, sent out from a church there. Um, specifically with the purposes of planting uh, in Wellington, New Zealand. And, uh, and I was actually doing my internship under another guy at that point and came along for the ride. And, uh, and he ended up then uh, giving the church over to me once it had been sort of planted and established. And he went over and, and, and uh, took some time out and then planted another church back in South Africa. So we've been here the whole time. And, um, and yeah, I've just been planting away. It's, uh, you know, I've had some ups and downs, pretty, pretty roller coaster journey, really, if, uh, if I get around to talking about it. And uh, I'm just really, you know, things are looking good at the moment, though. We're, we're nice and established. And, um, you know, the church is feeling really healthy. And, um, you know, it's not an easy thing in New Zealand. Not a lot of healthy churches to go around. So, um, grace of God, man, all the way. Now, you're married, and Candace is your wife. How long have you been married? Um, well, I've been married, got married a year before I came over to New Zealand, so that's like 12 years. Um, and uh, yeah, I actually met her. See, now I got, I got converted a year before that, and uh, I met my wife um, in a nightclub where she was the bartender. I was the manager of this nightclub, and uh, we, we, we became Christians out of that environment and, uh, and then immediately started the journey and far too quickly got into kind of notions of ministry. And next thing you know, we were married and up and running and coming over to New, Z New Zealand together. Wow. Had all our kids. So we got genuine Kiwi kids, three of them. And uh, that's been a fun ride as well. Praise God, dude. It's, it is yeah. so cool to hear people's story of grace and how God moves in and, and directs us every step of the way. So 
Um, yeah, let's, yeah. Let's talk a little further about your story of grace and specifically your journey into Reformed theology. You said you were running a nightclub and, and here God saves you from that and you begin to dabble in church ministry. How quickly was it that you began uh, the journey into Reformed theology? Uh, well, you know, when I started out, it was a charismatic church, uh, you know, you know, uh, didn't really have too much theological self-awareness, I don't think. So I didn't really have a cogent system of theology. But, you know, as I reflect back on it now, I mean, I would have been it would have been mostly a dispensational kind of, you know, folk theology uh, kind of uh, left behind series thing going on there. Um, so that would put me really on the opposite end of where I am now. Um, and I was obviously, you know, charismatic Pentecostal again, kind of the opposite end of where I am now. Um, and then I was Arminian, you know, versus Calvinist. So it really started off right at, at the opposite end of the extremes. And, um, and I, I was just going along my merry way. And, um, I, it's actually quite a funny story. I mean, my brother and I, we were both kind of partners in crime. Uh, we were really uh, saved together, uh, but also doing drugs together beforehand. And, you know, so it was a, and we both started ministry training together. And he's actually now a pastor in London. Um, but, you know, he somehow managed to go to a reformed church from the get go, um, right after being converted. And I went to this uh, full on charismatic church. And, uh, and so eventually he kind of, uh, you know, he asked me, um, have, I, have I seen these uh, doctrines of grace? What, what did I think of them? Um, and it, the, the conversation came about uh, when I bought him the Reformation Study Bible, which I didn't know what it was. I, he just, you know, I got it to him for his birthday. <laughs> and he turns straight to Romans and he starts getting all excited. You know, what do you think of R.C. Sproul? What do you, you know, what do you think of this guy? What do you think of James Packer? And, and I hadn't heard of any of these guys, and and uh, and it started this dialogue off that that really um, was blood, sweat, and tears from that point on. Just a full scale debate between my brother and I uh, for about I'd say about two years, uh, back and forth. You know, I'm just desperately fighting Calvinism all the way, uh, along with everything else it's sort of unveiling at the time, and. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, he got me. I, I remember being so frustrated that my brother was able to use the Bible all the time. And, um, and I wasn't. That, that used to tick me off. You know, I needed to uh, uh, fall back on all these arguments. I remember just going through John Wesley's arguments and, you know, thinking, okay, he, I've got him now. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and talk to my brother and, you know, give him a John Wesley argument par excellence. And, uh, you know, and he would just answer with a simple Bible verse and, and it would just kind of blow me away. And uh, I wanted to be able to do that, too. So eventually it got me thinking and it, it, over a long period of time kind of won me over to, to Calvinism, which was, uh, you know, the start of that journey, I suppose, into Reformed theology. Uh, and as you know, it moves uh, way beyond the soteriology. Um, and, and yeah, the rest is history, I suppose. There's so much to talk about there. But uh, that's how it started off anyway. For you, for you, in a lot of ways, it sounds like it was more like a, a flip of the switch than a, than a, 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 a dimmer switch. I mean, it was like almost a, a complete change. You're leaving your Tim LaHaye uh, Left Behind series. You're leaving your Pentecostal yeah. roots. And here you are yeah. uh, leaving your Arminian theology for, uh, for Calvinism. And in so many yeah. ways. Because well, I mean, we actually planted the church, you know, under that old theology. So uh, we were reforming once we had planted um, we actually, we had shot up to about a hundred people. Um, and then once we figured out, actually, you know, we were moving in a reform direction. We successfully shrank the church down to 15 people. Um, and <laughs> so that was awesome. You know, you can imagine how that would leave scars. Um, but, and, and you know, and, and then we've slowly, uh, but surely built it up again, but you know, uh, hopefully now on a much more sturdy basis, but yeah, it was brutal. It was, it was a, it was a big change. It was painful all the way. I, I really had to, I feel like I've had to fight through every single area of reform doctrine to be convinced of it uh, before we had, went ahead with it, you know. Um, but, you know, I have become convinced on, on most things associated to the confession anyway. How long was it before you began to uh, move into the confessions, specifically the London Baptist confession that you hold to now? Um, well, you know, we had planted the church and uh, we were going through this process, as I said, um, you, you know, just kind of reworking. I mean, I think one of the most painful issues uh, for me anyway, was that uh, we just 
I knew I didn't have a, a system of theology. You know, I knew that my theology, it was hard to even figure out what was right and what was wrong because nothing was coherent anyway. So I needed to start with the, the, the clearest things and kind of work, the, uh, you know, from the clear to the obscure, so to speak, and, and, and uh, just work it out slowly and painfully. Again, just kind of surveying the whole landscape every single time without any hunch of which direction to go into. So I remember thinking to myself, you know, uh, it would be great if there was just a, a way to, to to systematize this. This is before I was, I, I hadn't even read, you know, I was just starting to realize there was such a thing as systematic theology. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm going through this, I'm reading as many systematic theologians as possible. And I remember thinking to myself, they all have their, their own little idiosyncrasies and, and, um, and it'd be good to find a, a collective kind of wisdom on this. And, um, and again, not really even having the confessions on, on the radar at that point. Um, but, but then I can't, it just it dawned on me, I suppose, you know, you have these confessions, they're, they're a whole grouping of, you know, a whole bunch of, of, of theologians that have come together and, and uh, managed to, to put uh, together something. Uh, I remember actually reading through, through Burkhoff, and that kind of got me onto the idea of the Westminster and, and just the, the, the forms of unity in general. And, and I remember thinking, wow, I need to check that out some more. And his history of doctrine really helped in that regard. Um, and, and, and then, it, then it was just, uh, you know, once I'd figured out, okay, this is what a confession was, this was its value. Um, it, it just kind of provided this, this great roadmap, um, you know, in a way that you really, not even the greatest theologian by himself today could do, you know, there was just this grouping, this wisdom in the council of many that was irreplaceable. So I, I just really got stuck in at that point and, uh, you know, sort of reading everything I could about the Westminster and, you know, um, just any other confession really that was reformed. And uh, yeah, it was, I suppose I've been a bit of a confessional addict ever since. <laughs> what, what do you think, um, or why do you think confessionalism is important to church plants? Why should a church planter consider, you know, the confessions? Yeah. These old crusty things that have been around for Sorry. you know two hundred years. Yeah. Oh man, that's such a good question. And uh, yeah, I think there are good answers for that as well. You know. Um, you know, and I've experienced both. I've I've been a church planter without a confession and a church planter with a confession. So I've felt existentially the difference here. Um, but the first thing is that when you plant your church, even if you had been to seminary, uh, you know, you went to the best possible scenario. You know, Westminster Seminary or some some amazing seminary and you've just gone all the way and you feel like you got all your ducks in a row theologically. And, uh, and, and that's great. You know, you've planted out well done. Excellent. You know, you figured out your, your theology before you plant, you've already doing, you're already doing better than I did. <laughs> but, um, uh, let, let's say, you know, best case scenario, you plant your church, you still are, if you're not part of a confessional grouping or you don't hold to a confession, you're still kind of this new thing that people don't really know what to do with. They, you know, where did you really begin? Where are your roots necessarily? Um, you know, they, they have to kind of, the only way to figure you out is to get to know you, and that might or might not happen, you know, depending on how tolerant people are and uh, how much patience they have with you or how much time they have to spare. But, you know, if you have something of a confession, I mean, you, you're putting everything on the table. You're saying, you know, here's, here's what we're about when you check us out. This is, you know... Full disclosure is what we're, we're we're standing for, but also here's where our roots are. We don't we didn't start last year. We started 500 years ago. Uh, in many senses, we've got we've got roots going all the way back to um, really the, the the church as it has been present in history, and uh, and I think with a lot of I mean there isn't a, I feel this anyway with 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 so many church plants and so many different denominations and so many different uh, you know networks and. I think there is just a natural distrust people might have of, of a church that just springs up out of nowhere. Uh, you know, I mean, anyone that is uh, that has their heads not uh, screwed on properly will have to be asking the question, well, are these guys legit? Are they you know, a little bit off the wall? How do we figure them out? We have to just kind of go and check it out. Again, a confession will really help you. I mean, obviously, it's going to it's going to deter those people that don't want to be part of something that you're standing for. But that might even be a blessing on its own. Now, as the Acts 29 coordinator for New Zealand, what does it look like in the sense of what you're trying to do from the grassroots of trying to plant churches? I know one of the things is we want to be churches that plant churches, but what does that look like in a place like New Zealand? Um, well, 
You know, we want to, um, I mean, Acts 29 is, uh, we, there is our church and there's another church in, in Tauranga at the moment. So we're, we're the only uh, two Acts 29 churches in New Zealand. Um, so, you know, from Acts 29's perspective, there's just, we, ha- we have the goal of, of really seeing um, more gospel preaching churches, gospel centered churches um, being planted. And, and hopefully through these conferences, through various other means, we, you know, really are hoping to draw people uh, from various denominations, confessional or otherwise, um, out of the woodwork and, and uh, really being as helpful as possible and seeing those churches planted, because I, I'm sure you'd feel the same way. I mean, you know, while, while for me, you know, it would be great if I saw a, a, a confessional church down the road. I mean, I am not going to be complaining if I see a, a good, solid, gospel-centered, healthy church down the road. And so, um, you know, it's a matter of just going, hey, let's all team up and, and let's see something uh, done in New Zealand. There is a, a um, another great network in New Zealand as well that that is very much on us, our page in church planning. So we tend to work together a little bit or as much as possible. Um, and then from, you know, from my perspective, again, you know, X29 has a real help for me in that I, I my burden particularly, um, and this is less as an X29 coordinator and more just as a, as a, a, a pastor of a confessional church wanting to see more uh, confessional churches planted. I know that confessional churches have not always had planting as their strong point. Um, and, you know, it, it, that's a shame, I think. Uh, it doesn't really have to be that way. I, I'm not sure exactly why it is that way. Uh, historically, it hasn't been that way. Um, but to help us sort of uh, get back into that rhythm of, of proactively seeing churches planted, I think Acts 29 has a has a massive benefit in that it comes along and, and can say, hey, you know, if you don't have the resources for this, we can, uh, you know, plug you into those and, um, you know, just put you in contact with a whole bunch of people that have done this before. And, uh, you know, just perhaps uh, help help um, uh, people iron out some ideas before they go ahead and do them. And, you know, there's just a whole bunch of, I mean, I personally have been um, so helped by Acts 29 in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really a matter of distinguishing the two at a broader perspective. Uh, I'd love to just see, uh, you know, churches planted that are, that have the gospel at their core are healthy and, and, uh, whether they hold to my confession or not. Uh, but then of course, uh, in terms of being a reformed Baptist, I would, I would love to see, um, you know, those who hold to the 1689 confession really just, just proactively, uh, plant out. And we've got two two guys in the pipeline at the moment, uh, which is really exciting. One guy who's about to, um, he's, he's sort of in the final phases at Grayson. He's done his internship. He's on staff now with us and uh, he's getting prepped for being planted out. And that'll be the, the first kind of official proactive church plant in, um, in New Zealand. Uh, from, well, at least from, from, uh, Grace, from Gracenet anyway, in New Zealand, uh, who is Acts 29 and, um, and 1689 at the same time. So I'm really excited about that. Now I got you know for the guy who's sitting there listening to our conversation, and he's trying to figure out well, but how do you know if you're called to plant? I guess from your own, and you can only tell your own story. But what did that call to church planting look like? Well, you know, primarily I would say it began. Um, it just as a strong desire uh, to to go into. I mean, for me, it, it, it is a little bit difficult. There is it is kind of uniquely intertwined with my story. I mean, I was a drug addict. Um, you know, and I, I, I was, uh, you know, just delivered out of all of that. And, uh, and it was a real night and day experience. I mean, going to church was just literally the last thing on my mind when, uh, God pulled me out of that mess and started, you know, and I started going to church. Um, but you know, I think it was coupled with, uh, for me, I didn't, I didn't really know this at the time because I was just thinking, well, I would have been dead anyway from drugs. I was on that road. And God has saved me, and now I'm here, and and I'm alive, and so it just seems natural and and obvious that the the next thing for me to do is just go whatever whatever life I have left, whatever breath I have left, uh, it, it's going to be to serve Jesus, however He wants me to serve Him, uh, whether that means stacking chairs after church or you know whatever it means, I don't care if it means going to the Congo. I was in South Africa at the time, obviously, you know. Then so be it. Let's go to the Congo. You know, if it means. Uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't have New Zealand on the radar at all either. Um, but I was just really wanting to pledge my life to, um, to, uh, whatever God would have for me at that point, really not knowing what that meant at all. And, uh, the same with my wife, you know, just, just 
saying wherever you go, I'm going, you know, so that was our deal. Um, and, and then, you know, as I sort of saw what preaching was all about and, and just was so benefited, um, by, by theology and, and teaching. And I just, I suppose, was drawn more than anything to, to want, I wanted to study theology. I wanted to do this. I wanted to, um, teach the word. I couldn't think of anything more glorious. So it was really a, a just more than anything, a desire that grew in me from that point. I remember, I remember thinking it was just a natural Christian thing. I remember thinking everyone that became Christians obviously wanted to be pastors. Um, there was just, it was just my way of thinking. And I remember being shocked when, when I heard that someone else became a Christian and they didn't want to be a pastor. <laughs> I just, I would just be completely shocked by that. I was like, you know, what is wrong? You know? Um, and so and what I'm trying to convey is, um, and what I later realized is, you know, where Paul talks about the office of an elder and desiring that, that office, uh, he must epithumia. Uh, he must really lust for that. And then what happened, I suppose, is as I got involved and um, uh, came under an internship, and and uh, uh, my uh, pastor at the time sort of really got got hold of me and started working with me, and and uh, identified some gifting in me and started releasing me and some more and more things. Asked me to come along uh, to the church plant in New Zealand, and um, and, and think I think that real call. Uh, happened externally, I suppose, when the church comes around you and said, okay, well, we see that this is real. Uh, you know, you, you've been gifted in this way. Uh, you know, it would be great if you would serve in this way. Uh, so we call you as the church. Uh, but really that together with that internal desire and sense of call um, was was what made up the call, so to speak, I think for me. Um, and, and, you know, I think should do in, in large measure for, for most who are called to ministry. Now, are there certain aspects, like if a guy's doing a residency with you, that you're working through that helps him to discern those, um, the internal call, as far as, I know you've given the one is the lusting for it, the desire for it. Yes. Um, you know, I know in uh, the church planner, it's the man, uh, the the message and the mission, and, and yeah. we talk about that a lot. And obviously, when we're looking at the man, we're looking at his family, we're looking at his we're looking at his finances, and we're trying to to see those things. Do does it make sense for this man to be to be out planting churches? And obviously, there's the theological integrity and the gospel centeredness yeah. of his preaching, um, and and the mission. It, it, every mission is slightly different. It, it, there's a lot of contextualization there, but. Yeah. In the in the priority of those things, kind of how do you lay that that out as far as the things that are of most importance? Uh, yeah, well, you know, and I think it is really important to have some sort of um, system for guys that because you know a lot. I think a lot of the time, you know, we 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 end up needing leaders, and, um, and you know, we we're ready to go with something or other, and we don't have the leaders, and then we're asking ourselves, where are the leaders? But I think a lot a lot of the time the issue has been, you know, we, we haven't really been developing that process as you've just been talking about it. We haven't been um, allowing people to pursue a sense of call uh, in a way that's not going to totally mess their lives up at, at the same time. And so, yeah, it's been a real burden for me to try and put something together in that regard. I know that uh, I worked with a group of guys a while back to to do just that. And uh, what we have at the, at the moment, and this is um, something associated to our uh, Reformed Baptist denomination, but um, again, not exclusively to them, um, it is a kind of a four-tier system, I suppose you could say, a four-level system um, where you've got you've got someone that really might not be called to ministry ministry at the end. Of, um, he just does not know, and, and you've just mentioned a whole bunch of uh, things you have to consider there. Um, you know, we haven't considered any of those things. He's just going, listen, I think I'm hearing a sermon about called to ministry or whatever it is. I've read a book about it. How do I even know? You know, it feels like I should just do due diligence on this thing, you know, help me. And with that guy, what, what the, our first point of call, it sounds pretty simple, but it's been really effective in that our first point of call is just to put him in a, a reading discussion group uh, with something like Kelvin's Institute. So some, some decent meaty theological book. Um, and, and what I found was that, you know, it, the guys, you know, they'll three, three weeks in that and they'll be like, sorry, this is not for me. I just don't want to have to go through another week of reading Kelvin, you know, by myself and then coming and talking about it. That's just too, it's not interesting. You know, I'd rather just hear someone teach me about it. It's just not my thing. I don't like reading. And, and, you know, at which point we're, we're able to say, Hey, well, bless you. You know, that's, um, you know, you've had three weeks of, of good, you know, uh, enriching stuff. But, you know, the reality is in order to 
be in the posture. You just got to, one of the things, you just got to enjoy reading at some level. You've got to enjoy theology. You've got to be, have a desire to want to get into this stuff. Um, and so, you know, it just helps them immediately go, okay, well, actually I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not really there at the moment. So, so I'll just pull out right now. And, uh, and then you, you just affirm them in their vocation and, and, and help them to see the, the, uh, the value in what they're doing. And it's not like you have to go into ministry to be a true Christian and that sort of thing. Uh, but that allows you to really just bring in a whole bunch of people and really, um, ask them to consider it. And, uh, and it's not like they've derailed their life. They haven't like taken out, sold their house and gone to seminary to figure that out. Uh, they've, they've, um, they've simply gone to a church reading leadership discussion group. Um, uh, beyond that though, what we do is if a guy's really th- thriving in that environment, uh, we'd, we'd pull him out of that and under the pastor um, and all the eldership, just put together a, a individualized program for them uh, that might involve uh, some sort of uh, distance education. Perhaps uh, if seminary is involved, it might involve um, just just uh, just a solid reading program. You know, it's really personalized to whoever that guy is and uh, what his needs are at the time. And uh, that would be the point that we really start pushing him a little bit and seeing uh, if, if he's really uh, firstly uh, got the desire for this and, and got the, the faculties for it. And then at that point, you know, starting to look also at, at the other components of his life, um, as you've just mentioned, um, you know, whether he is in a situation where he can plant, whether providentially the door is opening for this, whether, um, you know, the church is seeing his gifting, whether he um, has the character and 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 all these other things that you have to consider uh, where, where his family is on it and, and that sort of thing. From that point, then, you are really uh, virtually in residency, uh, residency slash internship. Um, and uh, I think our, our internship anyway would be a full-scale, you know, intensive quit-your-job kind of seminary equivalent, I suppose. And, um, and that's where you really go hard. And the idea is you get out of your internship and um, you're good to go. Well, you're virtually good to go anyway. And um, and you're at least uh, ready to be uh, uh, ordained as an elder or, or or somewhere along those lines. I'm really encouraged to hear your steps there. And I know you said you guys are still developing those things, because too often yeah. you see guys that enroll in seminary, they pay the sixty thousand dollars to go to school. Yeah. But all the while, I'm walking with them in school, realizing this guy can't be a pastor. He oh. doesn't like people. You know, he, I know. he doesn't like shepherding people. And yet he'll graduate with an MDiv, and there he is moving towards some kind of a church, and you just see this train wreck, and you're watching oh, this. Man. And so having those processes in place are so important. Yeah. I want to ask you the question, though. Why do you think um, so many groups don't have um, a, a development process in place? Why have we neglected working through and helping uh, men f- determine the call? I, I'll just kind of say this as tamely as I can, um, you know, in terms of some of the ideas that I've had over the years. Um, I think, I think, you know, you've mentioned seminary there. I, you know, I, I, I love theology. I love seminary. I love the idea of training. I, I love the idea of going to a good seminary. So don't get me wrong. I'm not like an anti-seminary person at all. But I think I just can't help but feel there's so much of the current seminary model that is just not helpful. Um, and there could be some really simple tweaks. And I know a lot of seminaries have made these tweaks, which is great. You know, you've mentioned, um, you know, kind of just not allowing anyone and everyone to go to seminary. You kind of really have to be very together with the local church or presbytery or session, whatever, uh, you know, to to be able to, to filter out, you know, uh, you know, have people not uh, one wreck their own lives by, by by making them move into seminary prematurely, um, and, and being stuck with that debt and whatever else, the sense of failure, and then even worse, I think, yeah, as you said, just actually getting through it and then planting a church or taking a pastorate, and then they're not they're not called, we're called, they never have been affirmed by the, the church at any level, um, and, and I think if if seminaries would would just stop allowing everyone and anyone to to go that would put a lot more pressure on the church in general um to to try and just you know see themselves as more involved now i i know i'm I'm sort of preaching to the choir in many quarters they they um they they totally agree with what i'm saying and many seminaries have made these adjustments already and that's great um it's i suppose it's it's those that haven't that I, i get worried about um for us also you know in um in new zealand i know the any any reliance 
on seminary, you know, like, hey, the seminaries will train. We'll just kind of pick them out of seminary when they come. And that plan just will not work in New Zealand. It might, I mean, I don't know. You could tell me. It, it seems like it could work in the States. You've got enough seminaries uh, organized enough to do that kind of thing. But, um, you know, in New Zealand, you've got a really limited amount of people that are candidates for ministry to begin with. Uh, to send them to the States and get them to, to take on that enormous amount of debt um, it is just inevitably going to lead to them wanting to stay in some sort of academia or get jobs that can pay off the debt. Because if they come back to New Zealand, um, you know, they are not going to be able to pay that debt off with jobs in pastorates that they get year. I mean, typically you're looking small church, low income, you know, but yet we must, we must uh, encourage something that, that, that fuels people into these churches rather than away from them. And so again, I think a church, uh, taking on the mandate there to train uh, leaders up is, is so important. And, and the more we can see seminaries are not going to cut it for us personally. And again, I'm speaking from my context um, uh, in a, with the you know, major priority on our context. But um, you know, the, the, the less we rely on seminaries, the better it's going to work for us. So maybe that's one of the, the issues. It's, it's been an over-reliance on institutions that already exist to train uh, that aren't really training. Uh, and and the church needs to take on a whole new level of of um, ownership there um, in New Zealand anyway. No, I I think I totally agree with what you're saying. I, I see many of the same streams here. I I feel that the church has to play a greater role because there has to be more hands on. The last thing we want to see in Michigan is more guys leaving Michigan to go to seminary. They never come back yeah. to the cold. They don't want to be here in the snow. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know, but but then you get caught up into this game of seminaries and seminaries are ha, have become institutions trying to make money. And so there's yeah. more and more degrees guys can earn and they're letting more oh. and more people to come in so they can pay their staff and pay for their buildings. And it just seems this like this money pit of a situation yeah. where ultimately the church isn't being bettered. It's being harmed yeah. because we're not holding to the what I call the old Princeton guard, which was the idea of a pastor oh, scholar. And you go yes. back to the B.B. Warfields and and the Hodges and these individuals. Uh, one of my favorite oh, is, is Archibald Alexander and, and, and Samuel Miller, the first two uh, uh, professors of Princeton, and their high regard for, yes, scholarship, but equally yeah. that we're going to raise up shepherds. And Sorry, what did that mean? And, and I think a lot of that has fallen by the wayside. And uh, we're, we're in a mess and, yeah. and I think we have a lot of unhealthy churches as a result. And I'm not yeah. just like you, I'm not blaming seminaries. I think there's a lot of blame to go around. There's blaming churches, yes. there's blame yes. in, in a lot of places, but, but no, I, I appreciate a lot of what you said, um, specifically on that topic, because that's something I'm very passionate about. We have Detroit, which is right near us, which is a, a desperate city that needs gospel uh, transformation. But to bring yeah. the gospel there, we have to have healthy men come and plant churches and, 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 and revitalize churches. And the seminaries in that, I just at times wonder, it, it seems like yeah. a broken system. So I, I agree oh. with you wholeheartedly. I want to turn the page and talk about another topic, topic that you're probably get uh, pretty uh, pretty excited about, which is a two kingdom. I know that you believe the the understanding of uh, the proper understanding of two kingdom theology does impact uh, church planting. It impacts mission. It impacts the culture. And so, what I want you to do for the benefit of our of our listeners is kind of walk us through what is two kingdom theology and why is it so important. Um, as, as far as you see it, to all of those topics? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I recently, I do think it has a massive bearing uh, on, um, we're, I, I suppose at one level, just, just living the Christian life, you know, which is one of the things, the, the Christ in culture issue, uh, I remember it, it was a major point of vexation for me, just trying to figure out how to live in the world as a Christian, you know, without going Anabaptist on the one hand, you know, and, and uh, crazy theonomist on the other hand. It's just, it, it was a difficult thing to navigate. And um, and so, you know, Two Kingdoms Theology really came along and, and helped me make sense of it all, um, just as a Christian. But then as a church planner, all of that just got 
leveled up because um, you know you, you have to teach this number one. But then your 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 primary deal as a church plant is engagement with the culture, and you want to know where you're crossing the line, and you want to do mission well, and yet not step over the line. You want to stay theologically faithful, but how do you do that? And um, you know, I think it becomes it's becoming an increasingly uh, uh, more and more difficult problem to to deal with. Um, as we get more and more pluralistic and, and so forth, but um, yeah, in terms of uh, kingdom, uh, two kingdom theology, I mean, that's uh, there are a lot of his, uh, there is a lot of historical nuance, and, and so uh, you know, I know I, I'm going to probably tread on a million toes just by trying to define it. But basically, I mean, at its very rootsy level, you've got uh, God uh, ruling His kingdom, which is all creation, of course, um, uh, at, at some basic level. And yet this doesn't all happen in the same way, um, certainly uh, as a result of, of um, the fall and sin and, and all of these things that we have to try and reconcile with God's rulership. Uh, you have Christ ruling uh, both uh, through his um, secular um, realm institutions and his sacred realm institutions and um, or institution, I think I would say at that point. Um, and doing so in different ways, um, and uh, even this happening in different um, ways throughout redemptive history, and um, and specifically as as God's kingdom was foreshadowed, um, uh, took its prologue form in the garden, uh, was foreshadowed in um, with Israel and Canaan. So you know, it, it, it I think at its rootsiest level is just a way to to answer the question of how it is true that God rules um, and yet does so despite the fact that that not everyone serves him at this point, that there is the presence of sin and, and also um, the presence of, of, uh, of people who have uh, been born again are us uh, in full service to the king um, and, and uh, in an institution such as the church, um, yet um, we're not wanting to limit Christ's rulership simply to that institution. Um, so I think, you know, there is more to say the reason, um, and you feel free, feel free to flesh this out in any direction you want to go, but I think um, the, the, the application area uh, we could say that, that, that I find most helpful there is the way this helps you to um, navigate um, sacred and secular and, um, and, and even just saying those things, I remember there was a point at which I would go, wait a minute, you know, I was a lot of, a lot of the stuff I was hearing was that, Hey, you know, it was well-intentioned, you know, there is no sacred secular divide. All of, all, all of life is worship and sacred. And, 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 you know, you kind of get what, what people are saying there and, and, um, and, and just, you know, they, we hate the idea of there being a division between sacred and secular. And, um, and I remember just, just, just trying to kind of work with all of that stuff that I'd been hearing um, without going full scale theonomist at, at the time. And, uh, and yet, um, you know, then coming to realize, well, actually it's okay to divide. There, there is, there is, uh, there is something that's secular. It's neither holy nor profane. Um, it's simply common. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, um, a, a sanctioned uh, thing of God at this point in history uh, through uh, that provides a stage for uh, the gospel to be preached, for redemption to be played out before that, um, and and it allows you then a whole framework to interact with culture. I think one of the most helpful books I've ever read in my whole life uh, was a book by Michael Horton called "Where in the World Is the Church?" and he's really playing on that exact idea. Uh, you know, where in the world the the secular realm is the sacred realm, and uh, how exactly is um, uh, are these two things to engage with one another? So, uh, you know, if I could recommend that, that would be an incredible resource for anyone wanting to check this out. Now, the idea of redeeming the culture, you get guys like yeah. Francis Schaeffer, um, who's very well known, read by read by you know millions of people, literally, you know, yeah. that, that, that throughout time that have just been championing this idea that we should redeem culture, and yet in the states we can see the effects of that. In things yeah. such as like the 1980s with the Moral Majority, D. James Kennedy, yeah. God and Country, and and, and and they're and they're basically not just holding hands; they're they're almost one in the same. And and you know that becomes so polluted that when uh, when when we start to see the, the the church be more about politics than about the gospel, 
and yeah, that that clouding of the line and that blurring of the line becomes very dangerous and i think two yeah. kingdom helps us to keep things in the right perspective and yeah. uh of course i'm given the american slant on that but 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 speak to yeah. that at, from from a perspective of new zealand yeah, totally. I mean, uh, and again, you know, I come from originally South Africa. So, uh, you know, although it wasn't exactly the same situation uh, as the, as um, uh, historically, at least as the States, uh, there were some real similarities, I think, in that you had the Dutch Puritans coming over and kind of sparking things off and, and uh, bringing all of that uh, idea of, um, you know, them being the new Israel um you know, everything was to be seen as uh, theocratic and uh, really a lot of Kuyperian uh, stuff that got morphed in there as well. And uh, that, I mean, you know, the kill the Amalekites thing <laughs> turned into apartheid pretty much, uh, which which was uh, which was real bad. So I mean, it's a great illustration, I think, historically. I mean, the States was was less severe, no doubt. But, um, you know, a lot of a lot of interesting things that went on there. Um which which help us to see you know historically and today when you've got the uh, everyone trying to redeem culture and transform culture and and and, and end up talking about politics more than uh, w the gospel you know you have a real warning that we need to pay heed to um, yeah in, in New Zealand I think things are a little bit more clear to be honest because uh, you know we have a very secular um, you know feminist. Uh, uh, liberal government i mean it's just it's not even no one i mean we have long since abandoned the idea of any kind of religion in new zealand as being something of of, of state and um and so it's it's fairly obvious that you know if if the church is is going to be doing anything it's not in any way connected to state at this point it's it feels pretty rooty. It feels kind of New Testamenty in that sense because, uh, you know, we as they knew, uh, Rome was not yet peddling any form of Christianity. Uh, yet they needed to plant churches. We kind of have, we have the same thing going on at the moment. Uh, and so I think the the issue for us is less, you know, hey, um, people are, you know, preaching politics from the pulpit, um, but more, um, you know, it's so it's so different. Culture is so different from Christianity. Uh, you know, it, we, we're feeling like a bunch of Israelites in Babylon at this point. And um, how, what do we do? You know, what, are we to just kind of go Amish at this point? Uh, are we to just retreat completely and look different and, uh, you know, just find ourselves a little bit of real estate and kind of camp out there and hope not to be bothered? Or uh, are we to, you know, just resolve ourselves to the fact that we're we're pretty much doomed to syncretism and, and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to compromise. So we might as well not even try and stop that. Uh, I mean, the, the very thought of, of trying to turn New Zealand into a Christian nation is it's just not very realistic or appealing for anyone. I don't think so. It kind of, it is a little bit different to the States in that way. Um, yet the two kingdoms thing really helps as well, because it helps us to, to know exactly what we are to do as Israelites in Babylon, so to speak as exiles. Um, how do we, how do we go about this engagement process? What are we to do? Are we to plant vineyards and, and uh, seek the welfare of the city, or are we to storm the gates and and you know try and take over? Uh, what, what are we to do? You know, and um, and so from one or another angle, two kingdoms theology really comes into to play. Well, we're seeing that so much in the states with 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 postmodernism beginning to really take uh, uh, yeah. a root, and you can watch as a lot of these churches and pastors who are one kingdom minded are they're beside yeah. themselves. They have no idea, you know, where do you go from here? Because everything's falling apart. And you can see the panic, yeah. you can see the fear in their eyes. But the good news is the kingdom of God is advancing. I mean, I'm just thinking as you as you said that, you know, you've got a lot of people would would pin uh, two kingdoms theology into Augustine's city of God. Uh, which was which was kind of even the words crumbling, you know, Rome is crumbling uh, at the time that he was writing that everyone's freaking out like, oh, my goodness, the kingdom of God is crumbling, uh, you know, uh, as so many had thought you know, was the situation. Uh, they they really pinned their hopes onto Rome itself as being the, the this great earthly uh, form of God's kingdom. And, and yeah, Augustine had to come along and go, no, exactly what you've just said. Uh, the kingdom is advancing. This is how it's always, uh, you know, we, we have made a mistake in thinking uh, one kingdom. We need to be thinking two kingdoms. 
So how does how does two kingdom theology help a church planner? How how does that view of the Bible um, give them an encouragement? Good, yeah. I mean, um, I, I've recently actually just at a, at a X twenty nine conference uh, had the opportunity to speak on this because I do feel that this is um, massively helpful. Uh, well, it is for me anyway, and you, you know your listeners can be the judge, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, basically, once you've understood that, well, there is um, the difference between God's rule over God's people in God's realm when there is a geographical real a piece of real estate involved. Uh, so in Eden, for example, uh, you, you don't have a sacred secular distinction necessarily. You don't have a culture and kingdom distinction. Uh, all of life is, is under this sacred banner. Everything not holy is cast out or should have been cast out in the, in the garden. Um, and, uh, you know, when that, when that didn't happen, you had the entrance of sin and, uh, and the emergence of this common grace idea, uh, whereby there could be a stage upon which, uh, uh, you know, redemption plays out, but, but even more that you have the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, both living on this, on this common stage, um, and within the secular realm and, uh, within the secular realm, there is obviously that which is evil and sinful and, and uh, and there is uh, there is that which is simply common and and uh, amoral and and uh, and and simply helpful to both uh, sacred and secular, and um, and this is pretty much the way it's been playing out ever since the fall uh, until you get right to the point. I mean, you see the patriarchs, for example, just just really uh, living under this 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 principle that's very different to what we later see in Israel entering into the land of Canaan, where once again, there's a real estate involved. There's a piece of geographic, uh, uh, you know, there's a geographic area uh, that, that God is ruling and creating this foreshadowed image uh, of, of what his kingdom will be like when it is consummated. And, um, and you know, again, everything unholy is cast out they're, they're, they're to drive out uh, the, the, the pagan um, neighbors, so to speak, and not have any uh, joint to them to be completely separate, to be different in the way that they look and everything. Um, and, and so it's a different principle. It's a, a, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with theocracy, it's a different thing. In Eden, there was a theocracy. When you're dealing with Israel in the land, it was a theocracy. But then as soon as that, that foreshadowing starts to crumble, and God shows them all that actually this wasn't the real deal. This is uh, but a foreshadowing of the real deal. They get sent into exile. And uh, there, there again, we have uh, some prominent themes for church planners because, you know, Peter draws on the exile theme. We know much of the New Testament authors draw on the exile uh, theme for mission in that, um, you know, here we are a holy people, but we're living in a, in a, in a common grace realm once again uh, that is filled with um, that which is common and that which is is evil and that that which is sinful. How do we approach the situation? Well, um, you know, Daniel, of course, is a great role model in that. And Jeremiah speaking to the exiles tells them very clearly, hey, don't go all crazy on them. Don't go all Caleb and Joshua on them. You know, just go in, be cool. Uh, don't don't stick out like sore thumbs, but, you know, be, be holy, uh, be religiously set apart, but culturally common. And um, and then we see them going back into the land, and again Ezra's pulling out his hair because they're not abiding by a, theo- a theocratic principle, uh, but they they um, really aren't supposed to be pilgrims when they're in their own land. But then you get to the New Testament, and um, and you've got I mean Jesus obviously coming along and saying, hey, don't fight when they crucify me because uh, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, if it was, you know, we would go Caleb and Joshua on them. But we're not, because uh, this is um, this is a time of exile, so to speak. This is a time uh, at which we're just like those Israelites in Babylon, and uh, we're to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. You know, be in submission to these common grace institutions, even under Rome, as Paul tells the Christians, uh, and yet make sure that we're not compromising as we're religiously set apart. So we're, again, culturally common. And religiously set apart. So for me, you know, as you bring all of that biblical theology into into uh, an application for missiology, what it means is you you have uh, some mandates that you can't, you know, when it comes to the sacred realm, which I would think of uh, as uh, you know the preaching of the word, sacrament, church on the Lord's day, uh, you know, worship on the Lord's day. That is, 
you have something that is is in the sacred realm. It's to be set apart. We aren't to emulate the world in any way, shape, or form. It is to. It, it shouldn't look like a rock concert. You know, we've done something wrong if that is the case. And um, and, and there is something distinctive and unearthly about it. There's something heavenly about it. And uh, that's to be embraced, no matter how weird it, it feels at, at points uh, for those who are unbelievers. And um, and yet, when we go into the world um, from Monday to Saturday, we really aren't supposed to be wearing our "I Love Israel" T-shirts and um, you know, our listening to or doing everything that we can to stick out like sore thumbs, trying to show the world how uh, distinct we are, because we're we're actually called to be culturally common. Um, we're, you know, we're to um, live in the world, um, uh, although we're not of the world. Uh, we're, we're to we're to distinguish between that which is sinful, reject that which is sinful, but but also understand that there's a lot that's not sinful in culture, and uh, our mandate is not at that point to be culturally uh, distinct. Which I think so many churches, it feels to me like they've got it absolutely the wrong way around sometimes, in that. Uh, you know, you'll have Sunday and the worship service look indistinguishable from some sort of rock concert, you know, or whatever else is going on uh, in the world at the time. Uh, and then from from Monday to Saturday, as they go to their workplaces, I mean, they're sticking fishes on things. I mean, I, I even saw a fish that was swallowing a little evolutionary fish, <laughs> a Darwinian <laughs> little fish. The other. I mean, it was just, you know, in order, you just got to stick out. So, like, stick a fish on your car, uh, you know, just look distinct from the world from Monday to Saturday, you know? And, and that's exactly the wrong way around. You bring up such a good point about the confusion in evangelicalism. Because the church, the worship of the church, has become more and more secularized. While yeah. on their cars, their bumper stickers and and their T-shirts, and if you go to a, a Christian bookstore in my town, there is more Jesus yeah. junk than there is yeah. of any theology books of any substance on the shelves. And yes. it, it's so confusing to a new believer who walks in and says, okay, now how am I supposed to do this, this disciple thing? How am I supposed to do yeah. this follower of Jesus thing? And it's so confusing yeah. because of the way evangelicalism has allowed secularism into the church and also tried to yeah. change the culture. So you're, yeah. you're, you're preaching uh, a solid message. I hope my listeners are listening, but keep going. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, you know, and that's it. And I think it, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's and in year again, I'm thinking um, uh, of New Zealand, where so I mean, you say the word Christian or church to people, and um, they think they have all of that figured out. I mean, I think l a large part of the mission year is to go, is to find a way to crank open the door. They're they're kind of closing the door with their presuppositions to any to any furthering of their understanding of the gospel, and that they think they have the whole thing figured out. You know, they remember this this kind of post-Christian hangover where they remember the Eternal Burn fundamentalist preacher from when they were five years old or whatever it was, and um, and, and they think, oh yeah, I met a Christian. You know, he loves Israel. That's what I remember. Or yeah, Christian means don't go to the disco. You know, they got like the fundamentalist hangover. You know, or, or uh, to be a Christian means don't get a tattoo. That's what being a Christian means, and um, and so you know it. When they meet you and you say you're a Christian or uh, you know you're you're pastoring a church or planning a church, uh, they wouldn't ask any more questions about that because they think they've got it completely under control. That they, they know exactly what you're talking about, and of course they don't. They, they they haven't understood what being a Christian is. They haven't understood what the gospel is, and so your whole mission, it feels to me anyway, becomes like. Like you have to do something immediately. It feels a little bit like a salesman. We use a horrible analogy here. And I, I confess this is a horrible analogy. But to put your foot in the door as a salesman, they go, hang on, just give me a second that I can just show you, you, you might have got this whole thing wrong. Um, and so for me, putting the foot in the door might be, hey, you know, I, I have a lot of tattoos. Uh, it's not because I'm trying to be this anarchist pig. It's just because I'm, you know, I, I, this is very normal. Ta uh, New Zealand is one of the most tattooed places uh, in the world, and you know, almost everyone has a tattoo, so it's very, very normal for for everyone to see everyone else have a tattoo. But for them to see a Christian pastor or a Christian uh, to have a tattoo is is something that immediately, you know, causes them to think, okay, wait a minute, he he does he doesn't look like that 
that that guy I met when I was three years old or four years, maybe seven years old, um, who told me not to go to the disco. There's there's something immediately different there. And then, you know, uh, heaven forbid you start smoking a pipe with the guy or drinking a whiskey with him or whatever. Um, you know, next thing you know, he's just his whole paradigm is blown right open. And then he's going, wait a minute. So if if Christianity is not don't get a tattoo and don't, you know, smoke tobacco, then what is it? And um, and that's when you have an opportunity to to really talk to them. And and I, I've used actually way too um, cliche taboo examples there. But but you know, in some way, shape, or form, that's the paradigm we're working with as missionaries in New Zealand at this point. And um, and so that for, for us to be able to engage well with that, uh, you do have to really be careful that you're not going to fall into sin. You want to make sure that you're going into that sort of thing confidently, that you're not dishonoring Christ in the way that you're going about the mission. Um, but yet you want to know where it is that you can uh, live in Babylon and where it is that you can look culturally common and be culturally common. What, you know, is it okay to watch uh, you know, secular movies or listen to secular music? I mean, at what level is that okay? Or what level does that become sinful? These are all vital questions so that we can really, uh, as much as possible, reach out and engage with a culture that thinks we, we are, you know, Christianity means don't listen to heavy metal or whatever it is. And, and so to do that, what I'm saying is you need some robust uh, and accurate theology. And uh, I find uh, more than any other um, uh, really tenet of, of, of um, confessional or, or systematic theology, this issue of, of um, two kingdoms is just amazingly helpful uh, to, to allow that liberty, uh, yet for the purposes of the gospel, for the purposes um, of, uh, you know, just good cultural interaction. Uh, yeah. And again, more we could say, but I think let's leave it at that for this moment, just uh, in light of the fact that we're directing this at church planners. Let, let's, uh, let's give them a list of some books you would suggest they read on Two Kingdom. I know you've already mentioned the one from Michael Horton. What other books would you recommend? Yeah, well, while I'm talking about Michael Horton, I mean, I think, honestly, you know, I am so, so appreciative of, of Michael Horton. Um, I just, it's, I, I really am, I'm so thankful. Honestly, I pray and thank God for Michael Horton's theology. I just really, that guy really speaks to me. Uh, I would say Michael Horton, everything he's ever written just needs to be read. Uh, you know, if we, if you're going to read that, um, where got, in the world is the church? You got a man Sorry, crush. Go. I was going to say, you have a man crush, I, don't you? I do have a man crush, bro. <laughs> you know, I, I seriously, this guy, I am just genuinely thankful for him, man. Um, uh, everyone knows about my man crush. I have, I have two, and the one guy is, is uh, he passed away uh, about 10 years ago, but Meredith Klein would be my other guy. But just before I get on to Meredith Klein, um, you know, Michael Horton wrote a book called Where in the World is the Church? That's the one we mentioned earlier. Um, he has actually, they, they don't market it this way, but really it should be marketed this way. There, there's another book he wrote called The Gospel Commission. I don't know if you've ever read it. No. No? Okay. The, the Gospel Commission, which is, Really, two sides of the same coin in that he deals with the the the, the commission and cultural engagement from a, a church as an institution standpoint and, and what it is that we need to be doing. And then where in the world is the church kind of deals with it more from a, a you know, a Christian that's the, the church is an organism, so to speak, going out into the world. Um, and uh, those those books really should be read together. If you're going to read two books from Michael Horton on this issue, th those would be the two. Um, and then, of course, he, he has put out... Um, a systematic theology recently called the Christian faith. Um, so for Michael Horton, that would be, uh, it's just a great starting point as well because he's super accessible and um, just writes very well, I think. And then uh, you have, you have uh, Meredith Klein, who's just, um, I find him to be uh, amazing on this subject. I mean, it, Kingdom Prologue, it's a, it's a heavy read. Um, there's, I, I know that a lot of people, I, I almost don't want them to read Kingdom prologue to begin with because um it, it is a heavy read and they might get discouraged and maybe it's not the best one to start off with but if you want the gold if you really want the meat kingdom prologue is an amazing amazing book by meredith Klein. um and uh images of the spirit uh he wrote as well um really i you know again much the same way that i would say uh about uh, michael horton i'd say meredith klein almost everything he has written is just extremely helpful in my opinion on the subject uh, but then it's kind of condensed um forms um of of two kingdoms theology i think you have um van drunen's stuff as well fesco van drunen uh what is it called two kingdoms i think uh his book 
living in God's two kingdoms. Um, so that's very, very helpful, I found. Um, it's just a, a quick summary, quick accessible summary of the situation. Michael, thank you for your time today. You have uh, taken us on quite a journey, everything from church planning to uh, hearing and answering the call to ministry. And then we spent a lot of time talking about two kingdoms. And I, I really believe today's podcast will be helpful to not only planters, but anybody kind of walking through uh, what that call for ministry looks like uh, and specifically how to deal with our culture and, and what role does the, the church have in it. And so, Michael, thank you so much for the time. How would our listeners be able to follow more of what you're doing? Do you have a blog, Do you, your website for your church, whatever you'd be willing to pass out? Oh, man, yeah, totally. Um, well, th thanks a million for having me on, man. It's, it's a real undeserved honor. I appreciate it. It's great to, to, to talk to you again as well. Um, yeah, in terms of just uh, the ongoing ministry thing, um, you know, our, our, our church website uh, would be a good place to start there, and that's um, gracenet, G-R-A-C-E-N-E-T, just one word, uh, .co.nz. And uh, that sort of keeps everyone up to date um, and uh, with, with everything that's going on. And then, yeah, I do blog. Um, I, actually, Joe Thorne got me stuck into that one. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> he, he, so, surprise. I, <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, so you kind of I, – I, I never really thought to, to blog. And, um, uh, you know, it just seemed like a very tedious thing to try and get into. But, but yeah, he, he said give it a go. So since he came down last, last year, um, I, I've tried to keep that up and – and write about things that I'm interested in, and um, we'll just see. If, when Joe comes again, he can give me a bit of critique. Maybe he'll tell me to stop blogging because it's so terrible at that time. <laughs> <you know. laughs> in, in which case, I'll just listen to Pope Joe, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, but that's toleratedsojourner.com, uh, and that's an expression from Meredith Klein's theology. So, toleratedsojourner.com. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it, man. Well, awesome. Well, we wrap up today's podcast, and we hope to have you all back next week. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com. And be sure to like our Facebook